Welcome once more to the History Obscura Reading Room. It is a warm night here at the estate, and I've been puttering in the rose garden, looking up onto the stars very clearly, and I thought of the perfect story for you. First, here's today's promo. You ever laid awake at night and wondered to yourself, what is the perfect diameter for my magic circle? What was the Babylon working? How do you change into a werewolf? Or the secret history of America? Why God didn't like Cain's offering? Who really did 9-11? Was it the Masons? Was it wizards? The mysteries of the Kama Sutra? What the hell is the Mandela Effect? The Overton Window? Modern Art? The Kabbalah? Humunculus? Why Constantinople changed its name to Istanbul? Who was John Doe number two? The secret of the white eagle and the red lion. Then I might have the perfect podcast for you. I'm John and this is... The Abracast. Occult, history, conspiracy, and violence. Available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Once upon a time, on June 21st of 1947... Something strange occurred over Puget Sound in Washington State. It had already been a year like no other, with Nat King Cole's I Love You for Sentimental Reasons debuting on the radio waves, and the first black news correspondent, his name was Percival Prattis, was allowed into the U.S. government's press galleries. It was also the year a group of fruit flies, together with a collection of plants, made a successful journey into space. They made the trip in a V-2 rocket, which the United States had captured from the Nazis before the end of World War II. After reaching a height of 108 kilometers from the surface of Earth, the tiny astronauts returned home safely via parachute. Their success would not be shared with the menagerie of dogs, monkeys, rodents, and chimpanzees who followed them into space, only to die in multitudinous crash landings. With the World War finished and the Cold War just beginning, people began to worry that emerging rocket technology and nuclear bombs would destroy everything in existence. Their worries were compounded by the fact that the skies were becoming more crowded with things that could not be easily identified. On that night of June 21st, Fred Chrisman was working as harbor patrol staff in Puget Sound near Maury Island. Harold Dahl was working underneath him on a conservation mission that had him gathering logs from the water when he saw six donut-shaped objects hovering high above his boat. As he watched, one of the objects fell a great distance into the water amid a shower of metallic debris, some of which smashed into the boat, injuring Dahl's son and killing their dog. When the danger had passed, Harold Dahl used his camera to document the objects in the sky, and he later took these photos to his supervisor, Fred Chrisman. 
Intrigued, Chrisman went back to the scene to have a look, and did indeed find what seemed to be the remains of a crashed airship. It was six o'clock in the morning, the day after his encounter, when Harold Dahl received a visitor to his home. The uninvited guest wore a black suit and urged him quite seriously not to speak to anyone about his experience the night before. When Dahl pressed the stranger to explain himself, the man told him exactly what had happened on the water with the unidentified flying objects. It was a very detailed retelling, and again he urged Harold not to share his story. The man in black said, What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe. Public investigation into what was called the Maury Island Incident dredged up varying details in both Harold Dahl's and Fred Christman's stories. Perhaps they had sensationalized their experience, or fabricated it altogether in hopes of securing a spot in Fantasy Magazine or Amazing Adventures Magazine. After all, it's clear that both Dahl and Chrisman did anything but keep their stories to themselves, despite the alleged visit by a demanding man in black. If so, however, the next event is perhaps even stranger. Just three days after the Maury Island incident, experienced search and rescue pilot Kenneth Arnold was flying past Washington's Mount Rainier when he had his own encounter with unidentifiable flying objects. It was June 24th, and Arnold was flying from Chihalis, Washington to Yakima. It was a business trip, but Arnold decided to make a brief detour en route to help the search for a U.S. Marine Corps C-46 transport airplane that had crashed nearby. His search sadly proved fruitless, and so near 3 p.m., Arnold once more turned the plane eastward. That was when he noticed a bright, flashing light in the sky nearby. Looking quickly around him to try to locate the source, the pilot could see a DC-4 aircraft about 15 miles behind him. But it was not the source of the flashing light which returned 30 seconds later from the same part of the sky. Arnold removed his eyeglasses to test whether they were responsible for the reflections of light. He also moved his airplane side to side and finally rolled down the side window. And despite all of these checks, the lights remained. They were coming from nine shiny flying objects about 32 to 40 kilometers north of Mount Rainier. The flying objects, Arnold surmised, were flying in a diagonal formation. It was in this formation that they approached the mountain and passed in front of it, appearing dark against the snowy backdrop, but still emitting bright light. The objects flipped erratically as they flew, revealing themselves as convex shapes, grouped with one crescent-shaped object. 
In Arnold's own words, they flew about like the tail of a Chinese kite. Each maneuver caused a near-blinding flash. The objects, Arnold would later tell reporters, were like a group of saucers or pie pans skipping across water. Using precise calculations, the pilot found that the size of these objects must be at least 30 meters in length. Arnold tracked the flying objects as they continued to move rapidly to the southern peak of Mount Adams, where they faded out of sight. Speed calculations put them at a moving rate of 80 kilometers per 1 minute 42 seconds, or 1,932 kilometers an hour. In awe of what he called flying disks, Arnold assumed he had witnessed the testing of a new U.S. Air Force jet. Though the Maury Island incident had occurred before Kenneth Arnold's sighting at Mount Rainier, it was the latter encounter that was picked up by nationwide newspapers. Arnold personally was very interested in the previous event, and upon speaking with Fred Chrisman and Harold Dahl, he was convinced that their story had indeed taken place. In fact, Arnold took it upon himself to contact an Air Force intelligence officer to share both the Maury Island story and his own experience. He explained, I made my report because I thought it was my duty. It was the only proper and American thing to do. I saw what I saw. Air Force personnel visited the Puget Sound site and examined the debris there, taking samples with them when they left. However, following Arnold's report, the Air Force Material Command concluded, The report cannot bear even superficial examination, therefore must be disregarded. Another Air Force document concluded, it is the Air Force's conclusion that the objects of this sighting were due to a mirage. On July 4th, that same summer, both the pilot and co-pilot of an American Airlines DC-3 airplane were flying at an altitude of 8,000 feet just outside of Boise, Idaho, when they witnessed two diagonal lines of disc-shaped objects flying nearby. The first formation was comprised of five disks, the second of four. The pilot, one Captain Emil Smith, said the objects were flat on the bottom, rounded on top. The nine unidentified flying objects matched the DC-3's pace for 10 to 15 minutes before disappearing at high speeds out of sight. Of course, the epitome of the Summer of Saucers occurred in a sheep pasture near Roswell, New Mexico, when a farmer noticed strange debris scattered on the ground. The incident was reported in the newspapers on July 8th, with headlines that included the following from the Sacramento Bee. Army reveals it has flying disc found on ranch in New Mexico. The article continued, 
The Army Air Forces here today announced a flying disc has been recovered from a ranch near Roswell and is in possession of the Army. Lieutenant Walter Hout, Public Information Officer of the Roswell Army Airfield, announced the find had been made sometime last week and had been turned over to the airfield through the cooperation of the Sheriff's Office. The many rumors regarding the flying discs became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chaves County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken, and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Jesse Marcel to higher headquarters. The rancher's name and the location of his place was withheld. Kenneth Arnold eventually purchased a video recorder and brought it with him during every flight, hoping to catch another glimpse of the UFOs he'd witnessed that summer in 1947. He had no luck and started to believe that, to quote, if the army has no explanation, then the discs must be and I know this sounds crazy, from another planet. He also lamented the fear and anxiety seemingly caused by his sighting. A preacher called him personally to say the objects were harbingers of doomsday, and that the preacher was preparing his congregation for the end of the world. A woman in a Peddleton Cafe saw him and screamed, There's the man who saw the men from Mars! She ran out, sobbing she would have to do something for the children. As for the Roswell disc, the United States Army changed its claim a single day after news broke of its being in possession of a flying disc. Spokespeople claimed it had been merely a weather balloon. Later evidence suggests it was in fact a nuclear test monitoring balloon. But no satisfying earthly explanations have been found for those eight shiny saucers and one half-moon-shaped object flying over Washington and Idaho during those long-ago summer months. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you want more, you can always become a patron at patreon.com forward slash history obscura. I'm Mandy Gardner. Keep watching the skies. Good night. Mm-hmm.